Okay, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Matthew 23. If you're using a pew rack Bible, it's on page 805. Uh, last week, I gave sort of an introductory message for this new series that we're actually officially starting today called Spiritual EQ. And uh, if you missed it, go back and grab the podcast. But the whole point of this seven-week series that we're going to be in is to help us as a church connect the dots between our spiritual lives and our emotional lives. To, to make the statement that we cannot have spiritual maturity and spiritual health without emotional health and, and emotional maturity. And so hopefully, throughout these next seven weeks, there are going to be some lights going on deep in your soul about... Uh, your feelings and emotions and your deep internal life. But as we get started, last week I made the comment that any preacher that can live up to his sermons preaches too low. And it was proven to me this week um, with a birthday card that I got. Some of you know that my birthday was last Sunday. It was announced, uh, even though I had asked for it not to be announced. It was. Uh, And I got a birthday card and I'm, this is just vulnerability right now. I'm just trying. This is honestly how this went. I'm just going to tell you. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Um, I got this birthday card from a family from our church. Deb, it was you. Um, this is what it says. You set me up, lady. This is how it reads. This is the front of the card. Once upon a time, a very special person was born who was destined to change the world. And, and at this point, I'm thinking, yeah. You know. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you might be right. And then you open the card and it says, Calm down, it's not you, it's Jesus. I think he'd want you to have a happy birthday though. Which I'm sure that he would after I was completely humiliated. Um, no, just further proof that even your pastoral staff needs emotional health um, in in a very significant, deep way. Uh, And that's what we're going to talk about as we continue with this series. As we begin today, I want to share an image with you. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. As you can see, isn't that a cool picture, by the way? That's an image of an iceberg. And you may or may not know this, but science tells us that the portion of an iceberg that is visible above uh, the waterline is roughly one tenth of the entire uh, size of that iceberg. 10% of an iceberg only is visible above the water, while 90%, nine tenths of an iceberg's total mass floats below the surface of the sea. And, And what Jesus tells us is that our lives are a lot like an iceberg. He says there's a part of us that people can see, a part that's above the surface, and there's a part of us, a huge part of us, that people can't see, a part below the surface. And for Jesus, these two parts lining up is extremely important. He says for there to be kind of congruence between the above the surface level part and the below the surface level part is extremely important for spiritual health and maturity. In fact, Jesus takes consistency between the interior and exterior life so seriously that he rails against discrepancy in this area, perhaps more more harshly than anything else he talks about. Now think about that for just a minute. All the evils in this world, all the pain and hurt and suffering, all that's wrong with this world that we live in, and more than anything, Jesus talks about the evil and the damage 
when the exterior life and the interior life do not line up. Actually, Jesus feels so passionately about this that he even coins a word. He even sort of creates a definition. He defines a word to describe people who do not have consistency between their above-the-surface and below-the-surface lives. Does anyone know Jesus' word for this? Yeah, it's hypocrite. 17 times in the New Testament, we find the word hypocrite. In Greek, it's the word hypocrites. And every single time, it is a red-letter word. Each and every time this word is penned in your New Testament, in your Bible, it comes out of the mouth of Jesus himself. Did you know that? Now, to add to the case for Jesus feeling fervently about hypocrisy is this fact. Before the first century, the word hypocrite simply referred to an actor, a person who wore a mask, a person who on stage would pretend to be someone or something that they were not. It was actually just an adjective. It wasn't a negative word. It wasn't antagonistic. It did not have any sort of condemning connotations. It was purely informational. If you were called a hypocrite, it was just information that you were pretending, that you were acting, that you were sort of putting on the show. But then all of a sudden, this Jewish rabbi named Jesus comes along and he starts to use this word, hypocrites, in a new way. He starts to attach a different meaning to this word. He starts to use it to describe religious people whose interior and exterior lives don't line up. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, It is clear from the literary records that it was Jesus alone who brought this term, hypocrisy, and the corresponding character into the moral record of the Western world. It is ironic that even when we criticize the church for producing hypocrites... We pay tribute to Jesus, whose teaching gave us the picture of hypocrisy that shapes our moral understanding 2,000 years later. In other words, Jesus is the first person to say, it is morally not okay to be a hypocrite. In other words, why do we believe in our world, in our society, even outside of the church, that hypocrisy is such a bad thing? Because Jesus said so. To act outwardly religious when we have not dealt with the brokenness inside of our hearts is not okay according to Jesus. And here's just a little taste of what he has to say on the subject. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And yet you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. 
Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Someone's smiling, Lord, kumbaya. Right? I mean, this is not kumbaya Jesus, is it? In fact, Jesus uses some of the strongest language recorded by him in this passage. He has such a strong reaction to people whose internal and external lives are not aligned. Why? Why? Because Jesus understands how damaging and devastating it is to the human soul when people choose to live this way. When they choose to live outwardly in a way that is not congruent, aligned with who they are inwardly. Just absolutely devastating. Friends, this morning I'm titling my message Fighting Spiritual Hypocrisy. And I want to explore how we can avoid sliding and shifting into lives where we live like hypocrites, where our internal world and our external lives are not lined up. And we'll jump right in. The first thing we can do to avoid uh, hypocrisy, to avoid this kind of disingenuous life, is to embrace honesty. To know who we are. Let me tell you something that's true about you. The reality and severity of your sin will not always be easy for you to see. The reality and the severity of your sin, the brokenness and damage and pain in your life will not always be easy for you to see. Sometimes you'll see it. Sometimes it'll be glaring. But oftentimes, much of the time, it will go undetected, unnoticed, massively minimized by you. Jesus says this in verse 29. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people, God's prophets, those who came with his message, were often killed betrayed, turned upon by God's very own people. And these these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they are actually days away from killing Jesus, from crucifying not just one of the prophets, but the prophet, the Messiah, the very son of the living God. They're about to nail him to a cross. And yet... And yet, in their own minds, they think, if we had lived back then, we would have treated God's messengers, God's people, those who brought the word and good news of God, so much differently than our ancestors did. And they cannot see that they are acting in exactly the same way. They look back on history and they judge those who did the very same thing that they are plotting and planning to do themselves. Friends, sin is so much easier to spot in the lives of others. A a word that runs throughout this chapter, and Jesus uses it five times, is the word blind. He says the awful part of being a fallen human being is that we are so often blind, we just cannot see our own sin. We're masters of self-deception, and here's why. Discovering that you are not nearly as good as you'd like to be is a painful and humbling deal. Like discovering the brokenness and hurt and pain in your own soul. Isn't that why y'all came to church today? Just so I can figure out how messed up I am. Sounds like a party. I'm going to bring my friends. 
You see, seeing, seeing our sin is never fun. Do you ever sit around and feel really convicted and like see all the brokenness and hurt in your life and think, yeah, it felt great? No, that's not how it works. It's easier actually to ignore it or minimize it or rationalize it or justify it. Or skip right over the top of it. But Jesus says, no, that is not the path to spiritual health. That is not the path to emotional wholeness. If you want to have emotional wholeness and spiritual maturity, then you seek out the sin in your life. You pursue it. You try to find it. You do whatever you need to do to identify it. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this, but my elementary-aged son, for some reason, has an aversion to changing his clothes. I don't know what it is, but the kid hates to change his clothes. He will wear the same outfit, and, and if we would let him, he would wear the same outfit for days, maybe even weeks at a time. You've probably seen him here at church on consecutive Sundays in the same clothes. He hasn't changed for weeks. He will bathe, shower, scrub, do all the things we tell him to do, and put his same clothes back on. Unless we explicitly tell him, you have to put on new clothes. He just hates, I don't know what it is. He has an aversion to cleanness. He just likes the clothes that he has on. He thinks they're still good. Um, and, and in one particular time, about a year ago, uh, he was walking around the house, and he was in second grade at this point, and, and my wife kind of starts to get like a whiff of an odor, and she sniffs it out because she has you know, a sniff of like a bloodhound, and she's like, Dax, it's your socks. Go put on clean socks. How long have you had those socks on? He's like, you know, six days. Well, that's probably a little long. Go put on clean socks. So he goes downstairs, comes back up, and he's off and out to play. And then later on that night, you know, we were coming in, we're in for the evening, and we're getting ready for bed, and Dax and I were both sitting together taking off our, our shoes and socks in the hallway. And as he begins to remove his shoes, I noticed that he had two pairs of socks on. And I said, and it was like 80 degrees outside. There was no need for two. I said, Dax, why do you have two pairs of socks on? And he said, well, mom told me to put on a clean pair of socks. And I said, wait, so wait a minute. So you're telling me that mom told you to go put on a clean pair of socks and you took clean socks and you put them on over the dirty socks that you had on? And he looks at me as if I am an idiot and says, well, yeah. And I start to wonder, how does this child come from my DNA? And you're probably wondering the same thing. Like, how are we related and what does this mean about me? See, we all know that to do that would be crazy. But it's exactly how so many of us live when it comes to our spiritual lives. We just choose to ignore the old, sweaty, stinky parts of ourselves and just layer on our new life in Jesus. We just put Jesus on right over the top of our sweaty, stinky, broken, messed up lives. Never taking the time to remove our old socks. But friends, the Bible actually calls us to something different. The Bible says there is a better way. There was a way that leads to true cleanness and an odor-free spiritual existence. The Bible says, understand who you are. Understand and pay attention to the old self, the false self, that you might truly become from the inside out someone new. This is Ephesians chapter 4. 
you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Friends, the only way to put off our old selves is to be keenly aware of what our old selves consist of. This is what Augustine said, one of the great church fathers. He said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Teresa of Avila said, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. Right? Not a lack of God knowledge, not a lack of Bible knowledge, but a lack of self-knowledge. Because it's God knowledge and Bible knowledge that intersects with self-knowledge. But if we do not know where to apply God's knowledge in our lives, the Word of God to us, then we never change. Peter Scazzaro, the, the author of the book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, a book that we've kind of used as a, as a launch pad into this series, he says this, Awareness of yourself and your relationship with God are intricately related. In fact, the challenge to shed our old false self in order to live authentically and our new true self strikes at the very core of true spirituality. Friends, what Jesus and the Bible model for us over and over and over again is that instead of ignoring who we are, we must spend time, considerable amounts of time, in silence and in solitude before God where we ask Him to show us who we truly are even when we do not want to see it. We must seek honesty. We must have a a true, a clear understanding of who we are, our struggles, our brokenness, our pain, the places where we're susceptible to sin. If we do not know this, we are bound to fail in our walk with God and Christ. One of the best examples of someone who lived this way in the scriptures, aside from Jesus, who is very aware of himself, so aware. Think about the temptations in the wilderness. Um, But aside from Jesus, perhaps the best example in the scriptures is David. David was this man in the Old Testament who was the king of Israel. He was a follower of God. He spent numerous hours alone with the Lord asking God to reveal things about his heart, discovering who he was. And instead of just relying on his gifts and his talents and his position and his power, he said, God, I want to go deeper. I want you to reveal the stuff that's way down inside of me. Listen to these words. These are words of David from Psalm 139. Just two verses here, and I think that will show you how David lived out his spiritual life, how he got honest with God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Is there anything, God, anything broken, anything that I'm worried about that I'm not even aware about? Is there anything in me, Lord, that's offensive to you in any way? If there is, show it to me. I must see it. Help it to become clear in my mind. Don't just cover it up, God. You see, friends, step one in battling spiritual hypocrisy is to seek honesty, to pursue it, to go after it, to get honest with God and know who you are. The second thing you need to do to battle hypocrisy is to embrace authenticity. 
You see, where honesty involves asking God to help you to know who you are, authenticity is the call to stop hiding and show who you are to others. This one's pretty simple. Authenticity is simply making this statement wholeheartedly and very, very honestly. I will not pretend to be someone I'm not, but instead I will invite others to see and speak into even the darkest parts of my interior life. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says to the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, you have to understand the scene here because Jesus is drawing on a very, very tangible reality that's right in front of them. In Numbers chapter 19, it's passage in the Old Testament, uh, the law said that anyone who came into contact with a dead body or, or even a, a grave would be unclean for seven days. And if you were unclean, you were prohibited from taking part in certain religious ceremonies and practices. And, and most of the time, this would be a bummer, but not, not tragic. But when Jesus is talking here in Matthew 23, it's the Passover. Passover was one of the most renowned and celebrated festivals in the history of ancient Israel. People would travel hundreds of miles to be in Jerusalem for Passover. Now, imagine that. Hundreds of miles, not on Southwest Airlines, not in your cozy SUV with flip-down screens and movies for the kids. Hundreds of miles on windy dirt roads where they walked or rode on the backs of animals just so that they could celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And think, think how tragic it would be if all of a sudden, days before the event, you stumbled accidentally upon a grave or a tomb, came into contact with that, and all of a sudden you were disqualified. Your entire trip was ruined. And in, in ancient Israel, people were often buried right along the roadways, right off to the side, and there were, there were just a bunch of unmarked graves. And so to avoid this kind of tragedy, what they would do is that weeks before Passover, they would go out and they would take whitewash, and they would whitewash all the tombstones in and around Jerusalem just so that you could see them, so they could stick out. And so here's what Jesus is doing. In the midst of this scene, he's in Jerusalem. It's the week of Passover. He looks around. He sees all these splotches of whitewash all over the place, clean and pure and bright and shining in the sun. He says, you guys know what you're like? You're like all these graves. What people see, what you show others is this clean and whitewashed exterior, but what you never reveal is what's inside that you're rotting and full of death. You see, what Jesus hates about the Pharisees, what Jesus hates about religious people, what Jesus despises and longs for humanity to be free of, is pretending, hiding, not letting other people see what is actually happening inside of us. Friends, faith is not just a personal thing. It's a communal thing. It always has been from the very beginning of time. It always will be. It will involve very personal times with you and God. But mostly, mostly, faith is something you do together with other people. 
You need, Jesus says, other people's eyes on your life. You need other people who will tell you the truth. You need people in your life that you know and love and that know and love you enough to say, I see some stuff in you and that stuff ain't good. Got any ain't good people in your world? Got got anybody you could go to and ask, do you see any areas of hypocrisy in me? Is there any sin in my life that I don't see? Are there broken parts of me that I am unaware of and that are just like shining out of my life, driving me, directing my life, even though I do not know that they are? And here's my experience with this. My experience with this is that so many of us would say, man, I'd be real open to it if someone would tell me that stuff, which may or may not be true. But here's the truth. Most people in your life especially the people closest to you, will not offer you this information unsolicited. In fact, most people in your life will not offer this information to you even if you ask them for it. Because it's a real scary thing to speak the truth to someone about their sin. Friends, if you want someone to speak to you and tell you about the junk in your life, the sin in your world, you're going to have to give permission and continually invite people to do this for you or they will not. It's not going to just happen on accident one day. In the late 1700s, John and Charles Wesley started a movement And in this movement, what they really wanted was for people to experience the deep, internal life transformation that Jesus offered. And at the very uh, center of their movement were these things called societies. They're actually just like old-fashioned community groups. We have them here today. We call them community groups here, but they call them societies. And if you wanted to join one of the Westland societies, there were a series of sort of entrance questions that you had to answer. It was like the entrance exam for getting into a small group in this particular movement at this particular time. These are not our entrance questions for our community groups, so don't freak out and run for the door. But this is what they would ask, and here's how, what they would have to answer. Seven questions. Question one. Does any sin, inward or outward, hold dominion over you? Question two. Do you desire to be told of your faults? Yes, please. Question three, do you desire to be told of all your faults and to be told plainly and clearly? I'm not watering it down for you in this deal. Question four, do you desire that every one of us should tell you from time to time whatsoever is in his heart concerning you? Question five, consider, you know know you're in trouble when the question begins, consider. Consider, do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, whatsoever we hear concerning you? Question six, do you desire that in doing this we should come as close as possible? We should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom. Is it your desire, question seven, and design to be in this and in all other occasions entirely open so as to speak everything that is within your heart without exception, without disguise, without reserve? Sign me up. You see, here is what the Wesley brothers understood about the spiritual life. We desperately need others to help us see ourselves. It's not enough just to be honest before God. We must be authentic with at least a few other people. And this leads to the final point I want to make this morning. 
It's about what we need to battle spiritual hypocrisy, and that's integrity. Friends, honesty is knowing who you are. We need that. Authenticity is showing who you are. We need that. But both of those things fall short if we do not take the final step, and that's the step of integrity, conforming who we are. See, Jesus does not just want honesty and authenticity. He wants integrity. Integrity is and always has been the goal. He loves authenticity. He loves it when you're real. He loves it when you're honest before Him. He loves it when you confess sin to brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus loves that. But He says this, Do not confuse authenticity with integrity. Because honesty is discovering who you are and authenticity is showing who you are. But if you just stop there, there will be no change in your life. Erwin McManus talks about this in, uh, in a book that he wrote. He, he says, Our prisons are full of people who lived with authenticity. They acted in congruence with exactly what they thought and felt in a particular moment, and now they're locked up. Authenticity is not actually what we're after. If we're authentically broken and damaged and hurt and living out of that, Actually, McManus says, he'd prefer hypocrisy. I'd actually rather have you be a hypocrite than just completely given over to authenticity if there is no integrity, if integrity is not part of the equation. Friend, integrity is when the you, the, the you that you really are and the you that God calls you to be, start to become one and the same. They merge together. They integrate with one another the word integrity comes from the word integer, which means what? A whole number. A number that is not fragmented or torn apart in any way. And what God longs for you is for you to have integrity, for you to be whole and no longer fragmented or torn apart in any way. Think about the things in this world. We talk about having integrity. We talk about bridges having integrity, don't we? See, that, that bridge has integrity or it's lost its integrity. If a bridge has integrity, then what does that mean? It means it's still able to perform the function it was created to perform. If it's lost its integrity, it can no longer do that. It is no longer what the architect designed it to be. If a baseball card loses integrity, then what does it lose? It loses its value. It was created to be, you know, square and straight and perfect and shiny and glossy, but now it's got scratch marks and a folded corner. It's been distorted. It's been damaged. It's lost integrity. A piece of art has integrity when? When we can tell that it was painted by the artist. We restore art sometimes, right? We return it to the form the artist intended it to have. It now has integrity. Friends, God wants us to have integrity. This is what Jesus says. He says this, blind Pharisee. You don't see it. But he says, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. He doesn't just say, live your exterior life in alignment with your interior life. He says, no, first clean up your interior life. Get your interior life straight and organized and back the way God wants it to be without distortion or fault. First clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean. Friends, Jesus gives a, a wonderful picture of what it means to be and have integrity in Mark chapter 12. 
There's this wonderful scene where the teachers of the law come to him and listen to what they say to him. This is Mark 12. He says, they say, Teacher, Jesus, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they ask this question, Hey, teacher of integrity, tell us this. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And it says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And now is the point of this conversation where Jesus will shift them back, shift them away from this conversation about taxes and money and back to the conversation that really matters, the conversation that will ultimately uh, help them live the spiritual life God wants them to live. He says, let's not talk about taxes. Let's talk instead about what you brought up first. Let's talk about integrity. They brought the coin and he asked, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I mean, that's fairly basic, right? Why are they so blown away? It's because Jesus is not just talking about money. Jesus is telling them and showing them in a real tangible way that integrity is when you live your life the way the one who created you, the one whose image is inscribed on you, asks you to. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you can have integrity just like this coin. This coin has integrity when it fulfills the purpose of the one whose image is engraved on its face. Jesus also says you can have integrity when you live like the one whose image has been etched onto your soul. Do you know whose image that is? It's the triune God of heaven. Jesus says integrity is taking your interior life and restoring and redeeming it back by the power of God to the imago Dei that you were created to have. When your internal world, when your internal desires, when your internal emotions are cleaned up and transformed um, and regenerated back to the Imago Dei, to the person that you were created to be, that's when you're truly authentic. That's when you really have integrity. And now, from that place of integrity, from that image of God that is etched and engraved on your soul, now you can live the life externally that God calls you to live. That's what it means to be people of integrity. And so friends, as we go this morning, let me ask you a couple questions. Been honest with God lately? How often, how long has it been since you sat alone in silence and solitude and just said, search me, O God? Search me, know my anxious thoughts, reveal anything inside of me that you need me to see. I just need to know who I am. Is that happening in your life? The way of transformation is to be honest and to stand before God and ask Him to do that. If you're not doing that, hypocrisy is lurking at the door. What about authenticity? Are you living in authenticity? Are you inviting people into your world? Not just being transparent. The world says be transparent. The world says just be who you are. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. 
But spirituality, I got this from Pastor Jerry, spirituality says, here, I'll be transparent, but I'll also be vulnerable. This is who I am, but not take it or leave it. Now I give you freedom to speak into it, to challenge it, to point me towards living like Jesus. Got any people in your life that you can exercise and live authentically with? People that you can ask about hypocrisy, Ask about the stuff that you really don't want to hear, but you know that you need to. And then finally, are you willing to conform to the image of God? Are you willing to allow your heart and soul to be changed by the Holy Spirit back into the place where your soul now bears unvarnished the image of the one that created you, the Imago Dei? See, that's the promise of Jesus. He says, I've come to restore you and redeem you that you may be set right, that the image that was once engraved on your heart and soul will be sort of cleaned off and brushed up and now you can live fully with the image of God pouring out of your life from the inside out. That's what this series is about. Next week, Pastor Matt's going to talk with us about going back to go forward going back into our lives, going back into our families, going back into our childhoods to find the places of hurt and pain and brokenness so that we can pull off the old self and live with fresh socks, fresh Jesus socks that don't smell. That's our journey, friends. Are you up for it? Honesty, authenticity, integrity. Let me pray and we'll continue to worship. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus for his power and majesty, for his redemption, for the fact that he takes us damaged, abused, stained pieces of art and cleans us up by his power that we might reflect again the image of the Imago Dei that was engraved onto our souls. God, that's what we long for. Give us the courage to step into honesty and authenticity that we might begin to experience integrity. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray it together. Amen.